Hello and welcome to Oblong Desk where we've got the occasional table out again for a little special that we're doing and this one is on a triple album that was released to mark the enemy's 40th birthday and also proceeds donated to the Spastic Society which is now called Scope. So a good cause and a bit of music history as well. Noakes is joining me as usual. Hi Noakes. Hi, John. Yeah, I think it was also released to celebrate the uh, 40th anniversary of the singles chart, wasn't it, as well? Which which was an enemy invention, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So originally the chart was the enemy chart, wasn't it? And then mm. Gallup got yes, hold it was. of it a little bit later on in life. But yes, we have the enemy to thank for, you know, your career. Uh, and uh, Bruno's career and, and everything else like that. <laughs> yeah, well, kind, kind of. Yeah, kind of. I mean, there's a lot of things I don't thank the enemy for, but yes, you're right, though. So um, it, it's quite an unusual one, this. It's... um. It didn't chart in the compilation albums chart. I, I had a look and I was quite surprised to see that it didn't get anywhere. But I seem to recall it was one of those fairly niche compilations. It wasn't cheap, as I recall. I mean, I never got a copy. I'm relying on uh, online sources for the songs here. I know you you did buy it. Um, and uh, it came out, came out in October 1992 when I was a student, which is probably why I couldn't afford it, I guess. Yeah, and uh, it's a kind of much sought after, I think because of the kind of, the weird and very typical enemy mix of bands that were big at the time and artists that were big at the time, uh, some really classic songs. There's some lovely combinations. It's all covers. There's 40 tracks, all cover versions, and they're all number ones uh, from the enemy and later Gallup charts. Except, except yes, except one. Except one. Except. <laughs> we'll come to that. And there's an argument made that that should have been number one. Uh, which the which the enemy were at pains to make <laughs> yes. uh, make that point. So, without further ado, because given forty tracks and given that you've all got lives to get on with, listener, uh, we are not going to hang around. We shall kick straight off with disc one, track one. It's a Slade cover, "Cause I Love You," and it's by the Wonder Stuff. The Wonder Stuff's version of Because uh, I Love You from Ruby Tracks, which we are reviewing on Oblong Desk today. They like that so much, they put it on their own Greatest Hits album. So that's one I do actually own. And um, I've got a soft spot for that song because it was the first dance at our wedding, the original by Slade, not not the cover. But um, it's, it's a pretty straight cover, really, um, of what is, I think, a fantastic song. Yeah, and it's easy to forget that uh, there's a lot more to Slade than it simply be Christmas every <laughs> yes. day. Um, this is a brilliant bit of chunky glam rock, and I think I agree with you. The Wonder Stuff give it a really good go. It's it's a respectful take on Noddy Holder's vocal without sort of sending it up, I think, that Miles Holtman used to do. So, yeah, I, I think well done. Well done, Wonder Stuff, and a good, good way to start the album. 
Apparently, Miles Hunt got Noddy to fax him. I mean, you can tell it's the early 90s here. We're talking about fax machines. Uh, got uh, Noddy to fax him over the lyrics so he could do it justice. So, uh, fair enough. I'm, I'm amazed Noddy had a fax, frankly. I'd have thought he'd have put it in a sachet of cup of soup and just popped it in the post. But uh, there's, an, there's an early 90s gag for you there. Um, yes, or, or just shouted it. Just shout it across uh, the yes. black country. Yeah. Uh, but but the only thing that confuses me here is, given the commercial nature of this song and the fact that it would have been pretty well known at the time, why didn't they release this as a single? There were three singles that came off this album. We've we've covered this partly before when we talked about Now 23, and we'll come to the ones that were singles later. But why on earth did they not release this as one of the singles off the album? It's really bizarre. Yes, very good point. Uh, they did not uh, release track two either, and the, the, that <laughs> is entirely acceptable. Track two is Billy Bragg's When Will I See You Again, uh, which is a, a strange one. Uh, not that Billy Bragg was not going to appear on an NME-inspired record. Obviously he was. They thought that the song shone out of his bum. And actually, his vocal, which is usually the worst thing about any Billy Bragg song, is, is him singing it. That isn't the worst thing about this. I think the Bon Tempe bass line is the, <laughs> is the ultimate killer. <laughs> well, it's funny track. that. I mean, obviously, we listen to these separately and then come together and give our opinions uh, as, as if we were live. Um, and my... My comments on this were terribly cheap piano, so I think we're in total agreement there. Hurrah, we know what we're talking about. Um, yeah, it, it's not great. Neither is um, neither is track three either, so after a strong start, it, it does go downhill, and it's almost like they're getting the bad stuff out of the way early mm. on. Uh, the Jesus and Mary Chains version of uh, what, what was a number one for the Rolling Stones um, yeah. was originally a blue standard, Little Red Rooster, um, but this is a really weird, horrible, grungy thing, and I think I think it's just too much for it. The, the original's absolutely kind of like a nice blues song. And, well, yeah. I mean, I would say that Little Red Roost is probably my least favourite Stones number one. I'm not a big blues fan, and I know that's that's where the band came from, but I prefer their more commercial stuff. But to take that song and then smother it in feedback, which just sounds hideous even by jesus and mary chain standards i mean goodness knows they love their guitar pedals on full but um it's it doesn't do anything for the song it's just a wall of noise and uh i know the enemy loved the jesus and mary chain but i very much don't i'm afraid yeah not this incarnation um it's kind of in that sort of Depeche mode, I feel you, production ballpark but you're right the distortion on it it's it just it's makes it much. really hard to listen to mm. Yeah. So we won't, and we'll tick on to track four, uh, which is another band the enemy were very big fans of, The Mission, uh, and Atomic, Blondie's number one. I had high hopes for this, but do you know what? I just think it's underwhelming, and it loses a lot of the sparkle and the sass of the original. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's it's almost there, isn't it? It's it's not quite in the top drawer for this album. It's somewhere in the middle. Um, I think... Um, I changed my opinion on this. Uh, I know you're not a huge fan of Blondie anyway, but Atomic may be my favourite Blondie number one. It's either that or Heart of Glass. It depends on, on the mood I'm in. So I would have been mortified if they'd destroyed it, and they haven't, but it's just missing that certain something isn't it it does sound very like the mission so at least they've put their own stamp on it but it, yeah, i don't yeah. know it, it it feels like they've they're missing a trick somewhere and i can't quite work out what 
yeah, because, I mean, as you say, not the biggest Blondie fan, but you can't knock Atomic. It's an awesome piece of music. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, for me, there is something about that, whether it... I, I think it's Debbie Harry's vocal yeah. and the way she sort of slides around it that I don't think is quite there with this one. Yeah, I don't think Wayne Hussey is ever going to possibly <laughs> get himself a job as a Debbie Harry sound-alike, is he really? And that, that maybe that's what's what's wrong with it. Maybe, but yeah, as you say, a, a good attempt, not bad at all. Uh, and yeah, if you are going to listen to these tracks, don't avoid it. Have mm. a listen, see what you think. Um, the next one you certainly need to probably hear once to say you've experienced it. Uh, Everything I Do, I Do It For You by the Fatima Mansions, mm. uh, which is track five, yes. It is, and, and also our first one that was on a single, because although no one ever played it, and goodness knows there's no way anyone would have played this on the radio, uh, apart from Martin Fawcett on URN's Unknown Pleasures or, or something, but um, no, no one on commercial radio would have would have touched it with the barge pole. It was a double A-side with the Manic Street Preachers track, which we'll come to a fair bit later. Um I think this is quite interesting. Um, I like the intro. With, it's got an awful lot of samples in it. I don't know where the samples come from. And, and I remember listening to this at the time and being completely put off by it. Um, so listening to it again, it's better than I remembered. It, it's weird, but you want to listen. You want to keep listening. I mean, it is six and a half minutes long, which is actually the length of the full version of the Brian Adams track. Uh, although you obviously would never hear that version, you'd only hear the radio edit. Um, so they've kept the length more or less the same. Um, and it, it doesn't somehow get boring, although it does get very, very weird for the last couple of minutes. But it's almost like rubbernecking on a motorway car crash. I just couldn't stop listening. I, I just, you know what I mean? I just couldn't press stop. I had to hear to the uh, end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's got a kind of divine comedy-esque vocal hasn't it uh, and and then it's like six minutes of ambient house but to yeah. the words of everything i do i do it for you um in its favor it's very different from the original oh um, yeah i mean and, if... and as you as you say you know music anorak type you've got to hear it you you will not be bored and you'll be going wow it, it's not karaoke no very much not but i think it's worth listening to as you say even if only once give it a listen we're all going to listen to track six, and uh, it's our tube friend, Sonetien. We, we're always going to play Sonetien if we get the chance. Uh, this is their version of Stranger in Paradise. That's track six on Ruby Tracks. That's easy for me to say. Saint Etienne and their version of Stranger in Paradise, which I think was a number one going way back here to the 60s for Billy Fury, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Saint Etienne can do no wrong in our eyes, so they're on they're on easy street here. If I can be slightly critical, then it, it is just a fairly standard issue Saint Etienne effort. There's no surprises here, but then there's nothing wrong with that at all. 
No, I mean, it's it's mildly disappointing as a Saint-Étienne fan to me that they didn't choose something more interesting. I would say the choice of song is the problem here. Um, but then I know that Bob Stanley does loads of compilations um, on his own record label of lots of old stuff. Um, not cover versions, but, you know, he licenses the original tracks. And he loves his 60s and early 70s stuff. So I guess they were always going to pick something from that time frame it's it's all right but it's not top drawer again if you want to own this without owning ruby tracks it did get on a reissue of one of their albums i think it might have been tiger bay which was roughly contemporary um so it is out there if you want to listen to this one outside of paying 20 or 30 quid or whatever ruby tracks goes for these days yeah and on that subject of you say picking tracks I'd be interested to know what the discussion was between artists and the enemy about how how many of them were yeah. given tracks or because you know, I can't imagine you know for example that uh, the likes of Danny Minogue coming up shortly, listener, uh, <laughs> can't w- wait. W- waltz, waltzed in there and said, "This is what I'm doing," because uh, that would have been at odds with her career. So you know, th- I'm sure there are some artists who said, "I'd like to do this one," and they said, "Oh well, yeah. no, actually, we've got that." Yeah, I wonder what the pecking order was. Yeah, I, that's a good point, actually. And and the other thing I, that I was going to mention at some point, so I may as well bring it up now, is there are some very enemy-friendly artists who aren't on here. Uh, Morrissey is one big omission, I would say, for whatever reason. Now, admittedly, 1992, when this came out, was the first time he was pointed out for uh, slightly racist things. I think that was the year... Was that not the year where he was waving a National Front flag around or something on stage at one of his gigs? So so maybe he was persona non grata briefly. But you do wonder whether uh, Morrissey said, I'm doing this, and they just said, no, you're not. For for not just for Morrissey, that's just one example. But yeah, but you, 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 I would be really fascinated to know the entire process and whether there was any, you know, infighting uh, and and people storming out. And I'm, I doubt that happened with the wedding present, which is track seven. <laughs> um, uh, and we go right back to uh, the 1950s for this one. It's Cumberland Gap, which uh, was uh, a Lonnie Donegan hit. And, mm. and Lonnie Donegan, at the time he released it, was the biggest British actor at the time. And he was the first person to break America. Uh, first to have American top ten hits at any rate. This is a rather cheap and nasty version of um, of Cumberland Gap. Have you heard the original? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, the old, uh, the old skiffle number with the... Uh... I was going to say washboard. That's not right, is it? That's um, that's Arthur Atkinson. I'm getting confused there with, with yeah. some, You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, I've got nothing against Lonnie Donegan. I think some of his songs are very good. Um, I don't like the wedding present. However, I cannot stand them. I think most of their songs are terrible. Um, so I was never going to like this. What I will say is, I think the song we're talking about. You know bands choosing songs i think the song suits their style of music weirdly although it's a very very old song because it is kind of 100 miles an hour type stuff um in its original form and lonnie donegan songs tended to be pretty fast paced and although this is guitars and not you know old skiffle bands instruments um it it kind of works um even though i don't like it if you see what i mean yeah i know exactly what you mean um uh, for me it lost that sort of cheekiness yes and and innocence of because and i think you know if you go back and listen to sort of 50s 
and, and early 60s songs. There is a tendency to think that they are quite twee, but you've got to remember at the time that these were absolutely the out there artists people couldn't get people couldn't really understand what this wild crazy music was uh, and yeah you know it, yeah so, bill bill haley even though he was you know not a young man was regarded as a rebel wasn't he when rock around the clock came out because it was you know how dare they do all this stuff and make the teenagers dance in that unseemly fashion um absolutely and, yeah and and yeah. there was an awful lot of records getting banned for all sorts of random things i mean you know john layton johnny remember me that was banned because people thought it was too scary and weird and it was about people dying i mean god forbid we should have that on the radio so <laughs> so yeah, it, yeah. It's, you know i think most people do give lonnie donegan the uh, the necessary respect these days but maybe not so much back then i suspect yeah Absolutely. Uh, so uh, good to have it on here uh, as a reminder that there was good music around way back when. We're moving forward a little to the 60s for track eight, uh, which is uh, Amen Corner's original, If Paradise is Half as Nice, done by Aztec Camera and Andy Fairweather Lowe. Who was the original singer of the Amen yeah. Corner one, um, which which renders this a bit pointless, really, I think. Um, it's It's all right i mean he sings it quite well obviously roddy frame sings it quite well he's a good singer but it's all a bit pointless and dull and far too long it goes on for about five and a half minutes no 60s song that wasn't already that long needs to become five and a half minutes long no indeed um as as you say you are kind of going well did you have to do this they've they've mixed up the artists and tracks i mean we've got artists on here later on who had number ones yeah. which are featured and covered by other yes, artists. Yes. So whether this was just the enemy being like, all right, for one of them, we're going to get the original guy back in, but add Aztec camera, which again, they weren't at the height of their powers by this stage either. It, it, it seems like maybe favours were owed. Yeah, practically split up. I would, I would say it's, I mean, Aztec camera was always nominally Roddy Frame anyway, but I'd be very surprised if anyone else other than the two singers was involved in that. Anyway, what we're saying with this is meh. Yeah. Um, yes. We're certainly not saying meh about the next one. We've got we've got other things to say about track nine, which is the aforementioned Danny Minogue, uh, and show you the way to go. Uh, and it's hard to imagine this now, isn't it? But Danny was at this point the cool Minogue, probably because of yes. Kylie's long association with PWL, who were in enemies' terms certainly not cool at all. So um, I think for any of our young listeners, uh, a valuable lesson that trying to be fashionable is always a mistake, <laughs> because enemy went with went with the cool Minogue, went with Danny, uh, and it's like if you mm. can imagine Kylie Kylie doing "Show You the Way to Go." would be so much better and would have been such a much more lasting memory for us to share. It would have been a bit better, yes. I don't think it would have been a, a, a stunning piece of music. Uh, I mean, you're right about Danny being probably the, the foremost Minogue for that very brief period because Kylie, had uh, her, her career with PWL had really pieced out. I think her last PWL single was a god-awful cover of Celebration, which, frankly, wasn't much better than this. Um, the, th- the thing is, though, we haven't mentioned what song she's doing yet. She's doing Show You The Way To Go by The Jacksons. Now, if you ask the public to name the only song that the Jacksons had got to number one in any of their incarnations as a band, not as soloists, obviously, they wouldn't say, oh, yeah, that was Show You The Way To Go. They would say, oh, I bet it was I Want You Back or Blame It On The Boogie or maybe even Can You Feel It? It, it's not a brilliant song this I'm, I was always amazed it got to number one in the first place because it's 
average disco. Um, so, you know, there were many other better disco songs that could have been chosen for, for this, assuming, as we probably can, that Danny didn't choose it herself. Yeah, uh, and it makes you wonder if there was that kind of, I don't know, pressure to do something from the Jacksons or some, some you know, something from that. I, I presume, therefore, that Michael Jackson's 80s stuff was out the window for yeah. rights reasons, possibly. Yeah, I think, um, I, I think that we can assume licensing issues would have definitely taken that off the table. And so you are kind of le- then left with this. And if this is their only number one and it's not very good, then you can imagine that then the discussion goes, <laughs> I don't want to do that from any decent artist. <laughs> and then you are basically, <laughs> that's how you end up down that funnel. Uh, and and there, standing at the door going, yes, I will, is Danny Minogue. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go, uh, what, what song? What song is it? Don't care. Don't care. I'll do it. Yes. And so that's how we ended up with that. Let's play a bit of track 10 for you. Now, this is um, a band you won't have heard of, guarantee it, uh, because they were made exclusively for this album uh, or collected together. Uh, But it's a quality song. Where do you go to, my lovely? From a band called Welfare Heroine. That's track 10 on Ruby Tracks, which we're reviewing on Oblong Desk's Occasional Table. That was Welfare Heroine with their cover of Peter Sarstedt's 1969 hit, Where Do You Go To My Lovely, a single that uh, my mother bought and uh, the B-side's a treat as well. It's called Morning Mountain and it's basically filth, um, which, uh, which you wouldn't expect from someone who'd sung such an innocent uh, A-side. Um, and this is, as, as you said, Welfare Heroine's version of it. Um, and you know a bit more about this than I do, I think, so I'll let you explain. I have dug so deep on the internet to try and find out more stuff because you know when you hear when you see a band name like that and you go oh, i don't remember anything else no it was basically um uh, the enemy journalist delhi for daily he'd been doing various bandy bits with various other people and a bit sort of like neil tennant over at smash hits and they go could you sing a bit yeah, all right then. And so he got the the guitarist is a, a guy called Stefan de Batcellier, who was in fact a photographer. And the female vocal on this, I cannot find. I have dug so oh, deep. Oh, that's it's the one no, I wanted to nowhere. know. And uh. right. So the best I can offer you, and maybe you can you can verify if you think it is or not. It is possibly Elizabeth Fraser from the Cocteau Twins. Ah. Possibly. Because basically there, there was stuff flying around that, that whole Scottish, there was collectives that went mm. on there. I've forgotten, uh, I've forgotten the name of the, uh, the collective that they were all in. Oh, I don't know. I can't remember either, to be honest. No, but, uh... anyway, uh, anyway, um, I kind of narrowed it down to her or possibly one other, and she was the only soprano. Uh, so it may be her. 
Well, that's quite interesting because um, my my brief notes for this um, say that this is, you know, quite a nice cover version. The male vocal, not so good, which I, I now understand is because it was someone who's not being a singer as their day job. Fair enough. The female vocal on the chorus is lovely, is what I've written there. So I would really like to know who it is. Now, I'm not a massive fan of Liz Fraser's voice on Cocteau Twin stuff, so I'm almost tempted to say that i don't think it is her because i don't think on a kind of blind well not blind but uh you know a kind of listening listening alone without any kind of background information that that i would recognize that i i don't know it's i think we need to trawl through our list of early 90s indies bands with female singers and try and work out who it could have been who's not already on this album who knows? Maybe it's a, a female enemy journalist. I'm really surprised that that you know because there's there's a lot of you know there's a lot of fan stuff out there. We're not the first people to ever review Ruby tracks, but nowhere, nowhere can I find any information. And I looked long and hard. Um, I think this is better than the original. I think they might the original for me, and maybe it's just you know looking at it in today's through today's prism but i find it a little creepy and voyeuristic mm. when peter sarstead sings it which i think having the female vocal on removes that completely and turns it into just a really beautiful love song i i'm a massive fan of this it, and, it does um, change it does change the way the song comes across definitely and i think it does change it for the better i mean i like i've got a soft spot for the original because i used to stick it on the you know seven inch single version on my mum dad's old record player and, and listen to it but yeah it's 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 a decent version and it's one that not many people would probably want to cover in the first place so fair enough i'm glad it's on here yeah it's a, a little gem that you should definitely hunt out if you can uh, track 11 isn't though the Blue Aeroplanes version of Bad Moon Rising the Creedence Clearwater revival song um, if you've ever as, as many people will have done karaoke Bad Moon Rising then you've achieved exactly the same thing as the Blue Aeroplanes did uh, the only difference being that your effort wasn't immortalised on a charity record apart from that no difference at all and and you probably sang the right words um, which includes the bit where they sing hope you got yourself together rather than substituting self with shit which is what they did which is neither big nor clever um so uh, another pointless exercise really um see my uh, comments on aztec camera no song i mean this was two minutes long originally um they've made it far too long again and uh, yes just putting swearing in just for the sake of it is just tragic really so no i i hated this completely right let's never speak of it again instead we'll move on to one that um that's our first instrumental track there's a couple of pure instrumental tracks mm. uh, it's the shadows the shadows apache covered by the census things or just census things they don't have a the sorry chaps which is a really really good take on this uh, it, it brings a kind of modern twist to what is i mean anyone who's heard the shadows will know that very competent musicianship but it is a little bit twee there's nothing twee about this version at all it really stands out and it's um as i say another one of those which i think you can say 
is it better is it not it's certainly different and it certainly adds something yeah i mean i can't comment on on this cover because it's one of only two songs i couldn't find anywhere online to actually listen to i'm not a huge fan of senseless things in general so when you said it actually wasn't too bad i was a bit surprised but i'm not in a rush um to go out and find it by some other means put it that way Track 13 is our final track on disc one uh, of Ruby Tracks, and this is another darling of the enemy, Teenage uh, Fan Club. Yeah. And uh, they did Mr. Tambourine Man, which I wasn't a particular fan of. No, no me original. neither. And no. Yeah, we, we can safely file this one under. No. Well, it was it was a it was a bird's number one, wasn't it? Although Bob Dylan wrote it, which is probably why I don't like it. Because I think Dylan is massively overrated. Um, and this is a pretty straight cover. They've just put some echo on the vocal and a bit of reverb on there as well on the instruments, and that's all there is to say. Really, it's not much different. Yeah, there are certainly sort of I would say three sort of ways that artists have have attacked these songs. One is to do a real load of effort uh, and take it you know in their own direction one is to do a fairly straight cover in Bosch and out and there's a few more of those coming up on disc two and and the third is to completely ruin it yes <laughs> and go off and go uh, and I, yeah this falls squarely into the turn up sing the song try not to ruin it get out go home yeah and uh, very much so and I've done a lot of work for charity and I didn't like to talk about it, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's disc one out of the way. Not the greatest start, I think. We we we're agreed that mm. there aren't many there aren't there aren't many brilliant ones and the best songs, certainly the very best songs, are not on disc one. Shall we shall we see what disc two has to offer? Yes. Disc two of Ruby Tracks begins with Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine, who were also an indie darling at the time and also a student favourite. Uh, they decided to go for Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall. And um, what they do here very well is to make it sound like it was a Carter song in the first place. Um, this is in that category you mentioned where they take the song and, and do something a bit different with it and make it in their own style. Um, there's more swearing on this song stronger words than shit ladies and gentlemen which i won't um mention because we want to keep it reasonably family orientated don't we good clean family fun this podcast uh you might say um and uh it, i mean it's carter what more can you say they, they've basically turned a song into a carter song if you like carter you'll absolutely love it and if you're not a carter fan and you don't like their vocal style or or the way they kind of do their songs uh you won't like it it, it reminded me of one of their other singles and i forget which now you see i'm a, a very big carter fan under usual circumstances as has been documented on previous desks um and yeah you, you're absolutely spot on this is Carter doing another brick in the wall and uh, I know that's obvious but that is exactly what this is it's not them doing Pink Floyd hmm. at all I don't particularly think they've entirely nailed it hmm. okay Do you know what uh, but but yeah there's 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 good scope for listening to it and going oh but yeah that's what it would sound like I, I, I think it absolutely sounds like it should do well they were no stranger to uh 
a, an unusual cover, were they? Because they they covered Rent, didn't they? Uh, and stuck that mm. on the B side of one of their singles and the, the Pet Shop Boys song. In case you're you're confused, um, and uh, and that obviously was also done in their own style, and that worked quite well. So I guess they were quite used to this style of taking a song and making it their own, anyway. Yeah, they also did the Impossible Dream as they well. They did, yes, as a single that was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, which again, I I think was far better than this. But yeah, you know, well done. You get you get this. It's a huge song. You could easily screw it up. Um, you could easily make it sound awful, uh, and it's not awful. It's just hmm. for me. I don't know what it quite is. They, they there's something missing that the original had that this loses. It yeah. gains plenty. But it's not quite yeah, there. Not I, quite I, there. I kind of agree. It's, it's almost on a par with the mission song in that I, I was the same. I was I was thinking, yeah, this is good, but it's not quite top draw. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Mm. Uh, track two, then. Let's move on to a, a huge artist uh, about to become even bigger, uh, Blur, and their version of Rod Stewart's Maggie May. Mm. I think phoned in is the phrase I would use for this. Um, much as it amuses me to uh, hear a fake Cockney covering a song by a fake Scotsman, um, that's all the enjoyment you're going to get out of this, really, because um, it's it's one of those straight-down-the-line covers. It's not particularly great. No, and uh, I think it is Damon's vocal, because, you know, he can do brilliant songs and did do brilliant songs right through almost from this point onwards through the early to mid 90s blur were unparalleled certainly in popularity and in creativity and did several different styles and you know there's no care with this it's just damon going yeah wake up maggie whatever what it needs is a a good cockney sing-along at the end to bang bang chitty chitty bang bang don't you agree that would that would gee it up very much so yeah. yes 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 that would make it better and um, I'm not a big fan of the original either but so, so from that point of view not ruined because there <laughs> yes. was nothing there <laughs> so if you like if you really like Rod Stewart and I know there's several you're not going to be offended in, in, no. their, in their 70s and 80s so you, but they they probably want to steer clear of this let's play some track three though let's play what is for me one of the best songs on here. Um, this is Tears of Fears with Ashes to Ashes. That's track three on disc two of Ruby Tracks, and that was Tears for Fears, which was basically Roland Orzabal by this stage on his own, covering uh, David Bowie's Ashes to Ashes. And it's another one that it's a fairly straight cover version, you would say. They haven't done anything radical with it, but unlike Blur, it really works. I don't know if that's because it's just works with the style of his voice. I think it's probably a lot to do with Roland Orzabal's voice and uh, the fact that the band were influenced like a lot of the early 80s bands were by Bowie and that style of music but it's just perfect this I think it's absolutely fantastic 
I would totally agree with you. I think it's awesome. I mean, yeah, Tears of Fears are awesome anyway. But when I first heard this, I was just like, wow, to be able to get anywhere near Bowie. I mean, so many people have tried to do a Bowie and failed miserably. But this is, I think, the vocal performance on this is is stunning. And I'm going to say even better than Bowie. Ooh, controversial. Well, I don't know about that. I know. I can remember when our school band used to do, you know, famous songs (laughs) and murder them. (laughs) Everyone who listens to this will be listening going, particularly because he tries, you know, tries to copy the style of Bowie. You're you're constantly listening out for every single note being spot on and every single intonation of voice being spot on. And I think it is, and I think there are even some places where – his uh, slightly more mellow take on things actually is it, it's sung better. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I'm going I'm going to say hats off. It's a superb job. Yeah, I think I, I know what you're saying. Uh, what I will definitely say is that um, I didn't know all the words to this song until I heard this Tears for Fears cover because the way Bowie sings some of them, it's not entirely clear. So I basically learnt the words from this cover. So that tells you that he's clearly he's enunciating it better, I suppose. Now, you could argue that, you know, Bowie wasn't always about making everything clear uh, anyway. That wasn't part of what he was about. But, you know, I, I think it's a good example of, of how good the vocal is, that this was my yeah. route into understanding some of the song, really. Um, and it, <laughs> it, it is one of the standout tracks on here, um, probably from a bit of an unlikely source, given that Tears for Fears were considered pretty much washed up at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, one of our mysteries is, you know, this should have been a single. I, I don't oh, know yeah. if they pre-decided who was going to have the singles released or whether it was done on who was the absolute coolest, because as you say, Tears for Fears were definitely not in that enemy cool bracket at that point. No, but imagine but how to... much money would have been raised for charity if this had come out instead of bloody Danny Minogue's nonsense, which got to about number 20-something and probably earned them a few pence, but nothing much more. This this would have sold by the shed load, you would have thought, even, even with their profile being a bit lower around that point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and history tells us that uh, Tears for still going and still touring to this day. Saw them in concert, yeah. So like, uh, when was it? A year ago, maybe a bit longer, and they were absolutely superb. So, yeah, they've, they've, um, they've still got it. Uh, track four is the House of Love and Rock Your Baby. After the Lord Mayor's show comes <laughs> a very dull version of a really quite dull song in the first place. Yeah, I, I can't add anything to this because this is the other one I couldn't locate on any uh, sources online to listen to. I thought it sounded quite intriguing, the concept. I thought House of Love doing a disco song, that, that's got to be good. But from what you've said, it isn't. I mean, Rocky Baby, no. I, I, I agree. It's Although it's regarded as the first disco song, um, for that very reason, it's almost like a prototype of the better stuff that came later, like Donna Summer and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think I'm missing much here, so we'll uh, we'll move swiftly on, shall we? Yes, let's. To track five. Uh, and, and you've got to feel a bit for the Frank and Walters, who were doing I'm a Believer, because I'm a Believer, the Monkees pop classic, gets a, a kind of indie pop take done on it. And then two years later, and the only one ever anyone ever remembers is the Vic Bob and EMF. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) If you listen to this, you're you're going to go, 
oh, it's an indie version of um, of I'm a Believer. That's quite interesting. But it is no Vic Bob and EMF. It misses the duh, 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 oi, uh, which obviously yeah. any indie version of I'm a Believer needs. Yeah, and also there was that cover that we played at URN that wasn't a hit at all by the Poppin' Jays, if you remember, which was also, you know, quite indie jangly guitar, although with a girl vocal on so yeah it wasn't the most original song to pick by any means it's a bit like the wedding present track in that it kind of fits in with their style of music anyway so it's not stretching them to do this cover um and that's why i think it's very much in the middle uh, category of quality for this album it's not terrible but it's not particularly great either Yes, track six is where we do take a dive into the awful and we shouldn't be really because on the face of it, EMF, as we just mentioned, know how to do a good a good cover when they want to. But track six is receiving our Warnock Award for ruining Ruby tracks because it is their cover of Shut Up Your Face. Mm. Yes, yeah, one of the most infamous number ones of all time for keeping off a certain other track which we'll come back to later from the top spot yeah it's it should be good shouldn't it on paper it looks like it's a kind of dream lineup there with emf being slightly jokey anyway and this being a not serious song obviously but unfortunately this cover is three things it's unfunny it's incomprehensible you just cannot tell what on earth is going on half the time and it's just plain awful i think it was like either a very bad decision on their part or a bit of a hospital pass getting it yeah there's ways to do a novelty song and we'll come to a couple of those examples (laughs) later on Uh, but this is just not one of them it's just a noise from beginning to end i mean you know you've been given possibly one of the most annoying sing-alongs of the 80s send it up do something clever with it but they, they don't and no. I, as you say you, you you try listening to it and, you, and you're not actually sure what's gone on at all the merciful thing is that it only goes on for two minutes but i, I can't help feeling that they they may have been given this uh, and they were just really peed off that they didn't get i'm a believer and that's why they went and did i'm a believer later <laughs> on this is what we would have done interesting theory isn't it it's a very interesting theory considering the proximity to it on the album as well yes you might be right there yeah. Uh, anyway, it's getting a warning because it is, and there are a few contenders, but I think it's the one where this has all fallen apart and the, the great concept that Ruby Tracks is has just not come off in spades. Yeah. Track seven then, Suede, Brass in Pocket. It's a nice low-key version and again, a good marriage of song and artist. You can see on paper it should work. and I, It's fairly faithful to the Pretenders version, but, but just if anything, even a little more mellow. Yeah, and Brett Anderson clearly sings uh, Sidestep properly and doesn't make it sound like Sausage, like uh, Chrissy Hind did, so that's a bonus. But um, seriously, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very good uh, cover, I think. It's uh, it's slow, it's moody, it's slightly sinister. It's everything you would imagine Suede would have done with it, and they have. And I think it does fall into that kind of top category of uh, songs that... Yeah, you definitely want to hear again. Mm, yeah, I, I've listened to it a few times over the years. And uh, yeah, I think it stands up uh, as a good cover version of uh, what was originally a, a good song. Yeah. As can be said of the next track we're going to play you as well, track eight, by Tori Amos. This is Ring My Bell.
Track 8 on disc 2 of Ruby Tracks is Ring My Bell from Tori Amos. And it's a weird one, this, for me. I can't decide if I like it or not. Uh, there's bits I like, there's bits I'm not so sure about. The chorus, I don't know, it's not quite strong enough for me somehow. It just lets the side down a bit. Ah, well, you see, uh, I, I think, if you think of the original Neat Award version was sort of fairly suggestive yes at the time it was released you know it's not about bells and ringing at all just in case you were wondering uh, so so but yeah the original she sings and it's a fairly suggestive kind of seductive oh what do you think's going on this the way tori sings it is just pure filth you know there's going to be whips <laughs> chains and you're probably going to leave crying in the morning uh, it's not for the faint-hearted a night with tori amos and, and ringing her bell and for that i love it i love that slightly madcap thing she has going on uh i think it is really really fun and and playful and it's absolutely again one of these songs that is absolutely tori amos's version of ring my bell it is tori amos from from note one to the end it could only be her doing this and i think she adds an air of complete filth to uh, <laughs> what is <laughs> what is an already sexy song well yeah i mean I, I i can see where you're coming from although it's not my favorite on the album it is very tori amos um and and she has certainly made it her own and uh, for that alone you can't really argue it's just like i say not quite there for me but um it's certainly not one i would switch off next time i was listening good stuff uh let's move on to track nine then um and someone had to get the Beatles gig. There was going to be a Beatles song on here. Someone had to get it. And you can therefore presume that this must be the band that the enemy thought were the best. It's Kingmaker who get the Beatles gig. <laughs> and uh, it's Lady Madonna is the song that's been chosen. To be fair, they don't do a bad job. They kind of thrash their way through it. If you're a Beatles purist, you won't find much to enjoy. But, you know, if you like hearing Beatles songs done differently, it's certainly not the worst thing in the world that's ever happened. No, no, it's, it's very much uh, in the middle of uh, the quality pile on this album. Um, it's not the best Beatles chart topper by any means, I don't think. I'd put this kind of fairly near the bottom from the huge selection of Beatles number ones. There are many more interesting songs that could have been chosen than this to cover. So whether they chose it or whether the enemy chose it, I don't know. But um, it would have been nice to hear, you know, a take on something a little bit more interesting, like, I don't know, Day Tripper or Eleanor Rigby or something like that. Mm. Quite possibly. Um, those are more tricky songs to do. Maybe Fair. Kingmaker could do Lady Madonna. I think that I think that's I mean, probably I, got a lot to do with it. Yes, and, and as I say, they don't they don't do an awful job, but it is certainly yeah. You'd want the Beatles to be commemorated, I think, in a slightly more memorable way if you could be picky and choosy. Yes. Uh, another huge artist to cover next, track 10, uh, we get Madonna's Like a Prayer, and uh, Mark Armand's doing that one, and it's one of those moments where the enemy can sit back and go, yep, artist, song, nailed it. It's very, very competent, this, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'd, I'd say more than competent. I think it. Um, I think he makes it sound, and this wouldn't be the first time with a Mark Almond or Soft Soul song that this has happened, like you're kind of peering uh, through the curtains in Soho into some slightly seedy boudoir or nightclub at some torch singer coming out with this, because um, it, it's a brilliant production, and the orchestration on this is excellent. I don't think it's Trevor Horn, or 
although uh, Mark Holman had been working with Trevor Horn on his Tenement Symphony album at around about this time. But it, it's it's very much of that type, and uh, I, I think it makes it, really. The only criticism I've got is that it's ever so slightly outstays its welcome. Uh, I mean, Like a Prayer is five minutes long as it is. This one's more like six minutes, and the last minute is pretty much just some extra flourishes at the end and you could probably argue that that could get the chop but i i really really like this it's one of my favorites on the album actually and i'm i'm gotta say i'm not surprised that this is one of your favorites and uh yeah there's a lot to commend as i say i think the only thing for me is that it does lack a little bit of energy in the chorus the original but then if the original didn't exist and this was just like something off tenement symphony you'd go that's a quality piece yeah yeah well done so I, I think, yeah, don't judge it against what's gone before. Hmm. Although that's essentially what we are doing with this album. So. <laughs> well, that's what that's our nonsense. job. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Right. Okay. Um, the next one we've already reviewed and we didn't like it lots. In fact, so little that we gave it a Warnock. So it's avoided a second Warnock. Um, it's the farms. Don't you want me? Even in its now contextual home, it's still desperately poor yeah i i don't think we should talk any more about it because it's giving giving it the oxygen of publicity that it very much doesn't need i think we should move on to the next one instead right we'll play a bit of that then It's Oblong Desk's occasional table. John and I are reviewing Ruby Tracks, the NME 40th birthday album that came out in 1992. And uh, you just heard some of track 12 on disc 2. Uh, that was Ned's Atomic Dustbin, and hopefully you worked out that that was a cover version of Charlene's I've Never Been To Me. Um, well, where to start with this one? There have been times, you know, when the intro with its rave horns comes on my iPod when I'm on shuffle and i think oh great it's alternate and then and then the song kicks in and i think oh yeah it's this it's that authentic it's a rave cover of charlene by a guitar-based band and it's about a thousand times better than that should be (laughs) i just wrote down yes 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 and yes (laughs) this emf take note this is how to do it this is how to totally rearrange a song you've been given and totally make it work it's almost like something has been released from within Nets, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That they they had a rave song in them, which they couldn't do in their in their normal guitar-y guys. And it's like suddenly the enemy go, "We want you to do a cover," and they whisper around and go, "We can do the rave. <laughs> Now's the time." <laughs> it is mad, and yet somehow it doesn't spoil it because it's so different. It is. It's that, co- that, yeah. That, it's it, com- that it just exists. It is a completely different piece of work. Yeah. But the fact that it is, I've never been to me, makes it even funnier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could be anything, really. I mean, it, uh, in in the sense that it's 
it's a guitar band doing a ballad in a rave style and you know that could either be terrible or brilliant and it was either going to go one way or the other um in in a sense the song doesn't matter what they've done is they've arranged it in such a way that it sounds absolutely like a song from 1992 as i said alternate would be a perfect comparison um in in the way the song is structured and you've even got the little keyboard breakdown about two-thirds of the way through where it goes and all those other noises that you would expect from this era it it is absolutely brilliant they've clearly put some actual thought into this and although it may sound like oh they're being comedy no i think they've actually taken this challenge quite seriously yeah i'm going to disagree with you. i don't think it will work with every song and i think it does need to be something that's a little bit cheesy oh, to start enough. with i mean i know i know i know the original subject matter of i've never been to me was anything but cheesy but obviously the way it was done by charlie it, it's a very twee ballad they couldn't do this with something like, say, Ashes to Ashes, for example. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that, your point. And that it, wouldn't work because because the musos would be up in arms. I think it yes. needs to be a song that doesn't have a kind of credible heritage behind it. Yeah, I get for your point. It and to work. And also thinking about it, um, the talky bit where Charlene talks about uh, a little baby crying and all that kind of thing towards the end of the song, that is turned into a kind of megaphone talky bit in this song. Yes, with, uh, with... reminiscent of that uh, little Britain. Britain today is a powerhouse. <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah. And, and, that, and that was another familiar trope of, of rave songs, to have someone shouting down a megaphone about nothing in particular. So, so actually, yeah, you're right. I, 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 I retract my earlier point. I think it does fit perfectly with this song and uh, i think we both agreed it's one of the finest on this album very much so it's certainly worth a listen even if you're not into ballads or rave or ned's atomic mm, yeah if you're into none of those things you still need to go <laughs> and listen to it. final track on disc two is boy george who um does george harrison's my sweet lord Nothing awful or remarkable about this. No, it's it, it's exactly the kind of thing you would expect Boy George to pick, and I'm pretty sure he did pick this, given that he was in his Jesus loves you, religious Buddha type um, phase. So it, it's absolutely the kind of song that that you would expect him to pick, and it's done perfectly well. It's just one of those that is not particularly thrilling, and it's not particularly terrible. It just rounds off the disc nicely. And um, that's all you can say, really. Yeah, there's there's nothing more to... Sorry, boy, George, we could have gone on about you for hours, but you didn't put the effort in. <laughs> Hey-ho. Um, all through this album, we've been saying, oh, that band and that artist, and they went well with that song, and so on. And it set Noakes and I thinking, I wonder if we could do that. Now, we haven't prepared in the sense that we haven't told each other, but what we've done is instead of Look What You Could Have Won, we have done Ruby Tracks Fantasy Artists, uh, where we have tried to take on the role of an enemy producer and say, right, okay, we'll pick a number one, and we'll pick an artist, contemporary at the time, and put them together, and we're going to offer those up to see if uh, either of us think that any of the things that we've come up with are worthy of inclusion. Yes. So uh, we're not sure how this is going to work. <laughs> It might fall, might fall right on its arse straight away. But uh, I think we've got three each. We have. Are we so, going to do them uh, alternate, alternately or all three yeah, at once? Yeah, let's, let's, do, al yeah, let's do alternates. Right. So uh, you, you can start, mate. 
Thanks, John. Well, I've got I've got three. I've got a, a very personal choice one, one that the enemy would absolutely have loved, and one that I think is a fairly straightforward choice that um, would have been possible at the time, if you know what I mean. So it would have been a shoe-in. Okay. So I'll start with the shoe-in. Um, I was thinking that, um, that there's not much pure pop on here. Uh, the Pet Shop Boys, I don't think, as much as I love them, would have ever wanted to be involved in this project because I think that they'd done the Always On My Mind cover for an Elvis tribute and they probably thought well, we don't want to do another another one of these type of things. But Erasure were absolutely at the top of their game in 92 with the Avaresque EP. I'm not sure they were particular favourites of the enemy but I don't think they were particularly against them either so I would have liked and I think this would have been perfect with Vince Clark's keyboard noises in it. I would have liked to see Erasure covering um, Together We Are Beautiful by Fern Kinney. I think that would have been a perfect match. Interesting. Interesting. God, you had me worried there for a moment when you said Erasure because they are one of my three artists ah. too. Uh, however, I have suggested that I think they would have done something really quite nice with Tiffany's I Think We're Alone Now. Ooh, yeah, now that's a good call. Yeah. You can hear that already, can't you? Um, I, I mean, it would have been quite a straight cover, I think, but you never know with you never know with Vince Clark. Yeah, there um, is that. I mean, that that was a cover in itself, though, wasn't it? So, but but I guess that's not necessarily banned from this album. There's nothing to say that you can't cover a cover. No, and I was just going with it. it's a number yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, um, and we've both gone for eighty songs from the opposite ends of the decade. And I think, do you know what? I think they'd both work potentially. Actually, yeah, I'm happy with both of those. Of things. course, you do realise Erasure did a covers album about ten years down the line and it was pretty much universally terrible but i think if they'd done those songs at this time it it would have been great they would have done those justice oh yeah definitely right song right. song um, choice two shall i start yes you go for it you go for the next one. i i think the 80s is slightly underrepresented on this album certainly in terms of the the quality tracks there are a lot of uh stuff that's further back probably that that works quite well and a lot of the 80s ones are a, a little bit hit and miss so i thought why don't i pick something that wasn't particularly done well in its number one form but done properly by someone who's a really good singer would be great now obviously my first port of call was 1986 here because that's the year of terrible number ones uh awfully overproduced nonsense uh i refer you to the likes of boris gardiner and christopher doing the lady in red well i didn't go down that route i thought Every Loser Wins by Nick Berry is actually a very well structured song. It's a, it, there's nothing wrong with okay. the song. There's no, no I, yeah. I will, I will argue this. I don't care. It's a perfectly well structured song. It's a good piece of pop music. It's just that Nick Berry is such a bland, nothing singer that he doesn't do anything with it. In the right hands, it could be spectacular. And I thought, who? could have the range to kind of turn that into something spectacular. I thought maybe Morton Harkett, and I thought, well, there's no way in the world Aha would have been anywhere on the NME's radar. And then it suddenly came to me, Billy McKenzie of The Associates. Imagine what he would do with Every Loser Wins. And he was about to release, or possibly had at this point, his only solo album. So he would have been around and on the NME's radar. Just imagine that. I think that would be magnificent. I am imagining it, and uh, to be fair, I, I totally get your point about what Nick Berry's original, it's so glossy, isn't it? It's so yeah. echoey and sibilant, and uh, and it's like a finely polished something, <laughs> something you polish. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about, listener. Yes, it, it is. It, it's so overproduced, there's there's no soul to it. And as you say, the song itself, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of as well. 
I, I totally know why you've gone down the Billy McKenzie route. Uh, no problem with that at all. I personally wouldn't enjoy that experience. <laughs> but you know, you but but having said that, you never know. There are some bands on here who've done who I'm not big fans of who've done really well. Yeah. So, you never know. It would be interesting to hear what, what would be done. I've also stuck with the 80s and indeed the mid-80s for my second choice. And that is, you spin me round, brackets like a record. Oh, now that's Dead one of my favourite 80s songs. So I'm waiting with bated breath to hear who you think. Done by Pop Will Eat Itself. Mm, okay. They, they are surprise emissions from this, aren't they? Because they were certainly one of those enemy bands at the time. So, yeah. I, I looked see. down the track list and I went, where is Pop Will Eat Itself? Yeah, and no, that's a fair point. I think, I, I think you know, you, you look at some of the other stuff that they've done, there'd be samples, it would be different. I think it would be interesting to listen to. Okay, yeah, no, I, I, much as I love the original, lo- absolutely love it to bits, I think I would be happy with, with hearing that. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good call. My third one is my personal choice. Now, there aren't many who are going to go along with this. I don't think you are either. It's another singer who's uh, you know not, not universally popular, let's say. And with this one, it was a case of taking the singer and thinking of a song that, that, that would work. So, uh, as you know, I'm a huge, huge fan of Electribe 101 and their solitary album, and uh, Billy Ray Martin's vocal in particular, uh, and some of her solo stuff is also excellent. Um, so she would have been free at the time as a solo artist because Electribe 101 had pretty much dissipated by then. So I'm going with Billy Ray Martin on her own, and I thought she's very, very good uh, because of her vocal style at turning songs into something that's sometimes a little bit sinister, a little bit kind of scary, a little bit stalkerish. I mean, it's no no coincidence to me that they did Inside Out by Odyssey on their album because that is a, a stalker song. Not many people realise, but it's it's a song about stalking, basically. Um, I think she'd do a delightfully sinister turn. I'm hoping you're not going to laugh at this. On Yes Sir, I Can Boogie by Baccarat. Because if you think about the lyrics of that song, there's something quite weird going on there. Maybe it's the fact that it's a European production and it's been translated wrong but it's a little bit kind of seedy isn't it in some respects and i think i think she would bring that out and i think she'd do a good job of that the only other cover i've heard of that ever is um sophie ellis bexter's which very much isn't in that style as you would imagine it's very much cheesy disco which is fair enough but i think that would be something different to add to the mix i'd certainly give that a listen if it was on here which it is incidentally artists if you are listening to this and thinking yes we damn well should do that feel free knock 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 a version up and uh, send it to us yeah obviously. absolutely well i mean I, th- I i think we should i think we should tweet our chosen artists anyway just to see if any of them bite but ray martin might actually because she's a friend of mine on twitter so uh, you never know oh. it's not, not the biggest nice. name drop in the world that but there you go Right, my final choice. It's scary how, as I say, we hadn't talked to each other before any of this. I said, come up with some fantasy artists, and we, we cracked on. Uh, I've also gone 70s disco for my final <laughs> choice. <laughs> right. And uh, it's I Love to Love, brackets, but my baby just loves to dance. Um, the original by Tina Charles, yeah. uh, which which I absolutely love. Uh, and uh, I thought, who could do this? And I, And I kind of went, right. Okay, Danny Minogue is on here, and this is all wrong. We need a credible, up-and-coming female vocalist who the enemy could actually get behind at the time. And this is very zeitgeisty. Michelle Gale. A bit early for her, though, isn't it? She didn't have a hit till the following year. Or or was she just... Oh, I don't know. Maybe she was beginning. She had started doing that whole um, singing in EastEnders thing. She had, that's true. 
Um, know, that's it, very left field. Was she hat? Was she hatty? Hattie, hattie, yeah, yes, well, that's that's exactly what I'm thinking. The enemy were always looking for that next big thing, and they always wanted to be first on the on the cool bandwagon. And I can't think of anyone who during that summer of '93 was more pop media darling. Hmm. And she would do. She had a really good voice. She would do an awesome version of this. But it would be very much in that Danny Minogue, let's get rid of Danny Minogue's version of, of her terrible song. Uh, and let's put this on here instead. If you can imagine it in that place, I think this is a far better option. Yeah, you're, you're right in terms of there probably weren't too many options in terms of upcoming female singers around that time. I'm struggling to think of anybody, female, soloist anyway, who broke through late 92, early 93. There weren't many. I mean, there were far too many guitar bands and reggae artists around for that to happen. That's, you know, we, we know this from going through the hits of 93 on our other shows. So, um, yeah, yes. it's thrown me a bit because I'm, I'm, I, I do like the original. I think Tina Charles is a very underrated vocalist. She's not given enough credit, actually, for songs like that um and uh but i'm not a michelle gale fan so i oh, well. i don't know i'm not sure i would like it is my honest assessment well fair enough but uh as i say i i think she had a really really soulful voice which may have got produced out of some of her songs a little but it actually that's the same can be said of of tina charles as well she had a really soulful voice even though she was doing disco. Yeah, and if and if you don't agree, listen to I'm on Fire by 5000 Volts where she is absolutely spectacular on that with no vocal credit, but it is her singing that. Yeah. So, yeah, I I think if we're going to pick a favorite of of each other's choices, the one I'd like to hear most, let's say, out of your three, I'd go for the Pop Police itself one actually. I'm going to surprise you and I'm going to say I want to hear the Billy McKenzie version. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Because I think that's the most interesting one. I think that's the one I want to hear, and if I could go back in time to when he was still alive, God bless him, and uh, send him a prototype email, which probably would have taken about 10 minutes to write in those days, and send, then, um, yeah, I'd say, dear Billy, please cover this. It would be great. Love me. There we go. That's the world sorted. Excellent. Uh, And, listener, if you have any thoughts of your own on this, we'd like you to play along as well. You can either criticise and, and praise our choices or indeed come up with some of your own. Yeah, please do. Yeah, I'd love to hear some. Uh, at the Oblong Desk on social media is the place to do that. There's still another disc to go. Oh, yes, they spoil you. Track one on disc three is uh, Jesus Jones and Voodoo Child. Hmm. The Jimi Hendrix song, which was his only number one, wasn't it? I think, even though it was a posthumous one. Yeah, it's odd, this. The start is absolutely stolen from Get Ready For This by Two Unlimited. And you think, oh, here we go, more rave. This will be interesting. Although Jesus Jones are obviously more kind of in that mould anyway with the, with dance elements to their music. It just goes downhill after that first few seconds, I think. It does hint a bit at the kind of singles they'd come out with in 1993. It's not a million miles away from the likes of Zeros and Ones in the sound. But for me, it's a bit of a mess, I'm afraid. Any parents of toddlers who've walked into a room to find, like, crane or felt-tip pen scrawled on the walls, which which is basically every 
parent of a toddler. This is like the audio equivalent of that. Jesus Jones's mom's come in and gone, oh my God, what have you done? And they and they look sheepish and they say, oh, I was just, just seeing what would happen. And then they burst, <laughs> burst into tears and say they're really sorry and they'll never do it again. Rave Hendrix is not a good idea. And this is going to take, frankly, ages to clean up from my brain. And I'm very disappointed in them. Yeah, it's didn't like, didn't it, like it at all. No, no, it should, it's another one. It should have been good, and it, and it's sadly not. I, I think track two. I don't think anybody would have had high expectations of. It's uh, it's Bob Geldof, and <laughs> what what he's decided to do here is to uh, take "Sunny Afternoon" by the Kinks and turn it into some diddly eye nonsense. Um, and of course, it being a Bob Geldof song, it unfortunately has him singing on it. I think that's pretty much all you need to know, really. Yeah, the Kinks are my favourite 60s band. This was going to have to be something spectacularly amazing to impress me. And it's the opposite of that. It's really, really awful. Let's play another track. Let's play track three, which is the second instrumental song on Ruby Tracks uh, by Johnny Marr and Billy Duffy, guitar legends both. This is The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. on disc three of Ruby Tracks, which we're reviewing on this edition of Oblong Desk's Occasional Table. And uh, that was the good, the bad and the ugly, like you've probably never heard it before. So uh, explain, John, we've got two guitar legends. Well, one guitar legend and one sort of, I suppose. I'd say both guitar legends. Yeah, fair enough. And, uh, And it is another one of those beautiful moments where the enemy goes fantasy song lineup let's have him and him i just think the way they do this it's so classy i mean the original obviously is all whistles and was originally um a film score track yeah is it any any morricone who died recently yeah so it's got good pedigree to start with but the way they do it you can almost feel the quality and it's like one of those situations where, where you get a super group and you, they're almost testing each other out with what they can mm. do all the way through it. it i find it intensely amazing to listen to i, I do so on many an occasion and yeah the, the guitars are almost talking they are that good players on this you you play guitar aren't you? i don't so i guess it's always going to mean a bit more to you than to me but i do like it i mean i don't i don't rave over it quite as much as you do but it, it's very good i mean it's uh it's got a vaguely dance beat to it but nothing too cheap and nasty so it hasn't dated i wouldn't say there's some nice samples in there no idea where they're from um i don't think they're from spaghetti western films but i'm not quite sure um but it just adds a bit extra to it with the samples in there and yeah it's it's one of those where it's faithful to the original but it's different enough to be interesting and uh, and i do like it good good um track four is now this could be terrible it, it is cod the band and a status quo song down down so we're not dealing with musical genius at either level of the song or the artist here but but actually it all comes together quite well and and, um i think the indie take on it lacks a little of the energy of the original quote but the jangly chorus i don't know what you think about this i think it's actually quite a joy 
Yeah, I, 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 I liked this. I mean, I think Cudder a little bit marmite I think probably because of his voice more than anything. Uh, he's got a very unusual voice. What was his name? Was it Lol or something like that, wasn't it? Loz, was it? I can't, can't remember. Loz, I think. Um, I, I'm now going to be corrected by someone because I haven't done my research. But um, they they had one reasonably good hit, Rich and Strange, and uh, and we loved that at URM. We played that to death. And it's kind of in that vein, this. I think it's... Um, I, th- I think it's an, a nice one. It's not absolutely top draw, but it's it's pretty decent. And I think um, if you ask people, again, a bit like the Jacksons one, to name the only number one status quo it had, they wouldn't say Down Down. And yet, actually, I think it's one of their better songs. So, um, yeah, uh, good all round, I think. Yeah, and an interesting choice to see, because you wouldn't have thought the enemy would have been that desperate to have a status quo no, song, no. unless they were being sort of ironic. Yes. But actually, at, actually... You know, another one where history has got the better of them, and actually, you know, Quo are regarded much more favourably now for oh, yeah. songs than they were at the time. Definitely. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> I'm, I'm going to look forward to it. We're, we're playing you track five. Uh, it's the fall. It's Legend of Xanadu. Enjoy the next moments. You cannot legislate against wrongful encouragements. That's track five on disc three of Ruby Tracks. That's the Falls version of Dave D. Dozy Beaky Mick and Titch's Legend of Xanadu. Now, I love the original. It's one of my favourite number ones of the 60s. I'm not a massive fan of the Fall, but this is just... You can't help but smile at this. It's pretty bonkers. The fact that they've changed the quite hearty whip-crack effect that uh, the original band, I won't name them all again, it takes too long, used with a kind of squelchy synth noise is um, is just genius, really. Uh, I mean, it's like anything The Fall do. It's unique. That's that's all you can say, really. You know what you're going to get from The Fall. Uh, and again, I have written the word genius down. It's a word that's been used about Marky e. Smith on many an occasion but it is genius that they gave them a silly one to play with because uh, yeah had they had something more credible is the wrong word but more musically normal shall we say yeah then i i think you could have ended up with just another indie band cover whereas for me this as you say it's, it's just so much fun uh, and there is not a trick missed. My favourite bit of this actually is uh, where Marky e. Smith has, a, has a, an actual go at singing the bridge. <laughs> um, and, you know, he try, he actually tries to change the pitch of his voice. And you think, well, you've given it everything there. Fair play for trying, but, you know, <laughs> from... <laughs> it is... We're, we're, we're laughing, but it, it is genuinely... It's a joyful... It is. I mean, I'm just, just and a half minutes of your life. yeah. Just thinking about it now makes me want to go off and listen to it again, which tells you all you need to know, really. Yeah, it's if you know the original and you know what Marky Smith sounds like, you're you're imagining it in your head, and you probably need to listen to it. So it is available on the usual places. So go go off and find it and listen because it's great. Um, and in fact, while you're at it, then listen to it again 
instead of listening to track six, which is uh, Sinead O'Connor's Secret Love. Mm. Um, you remember, now this, this was originally released on CD and vinyl, I think, but particularly CD. Yes. And um, the, you used to have to play CDs in order in those days, unless you had a really swanky... Uh, machine with a shuffle button. Yeah, not all of them did, did they? So, so, so you'd have to play them in order. This is very much a skipper. It is. Um, it's not terrible. Um, it's not one of my favourite number ones. It's very much an old style. Was it 50s or 60s? Kathy Kirby, wasn't it? So 50s, I think. Yeah, uh, I think it's 50s. Yeah, and it she kind of does it in a swing style, and this is before Every Man and His Dog and Bloody Westlife had done albums full of uh, swing songs. So I suppose at least it wasn't done to death at the time, but I've got no desire to hear this again, really. No, it's, it's not great. Track seven's a little bit of a surprise, though. That's World Party's World Without Love, the old Peter and Gordon song, which was uh, written for them by Lennon-McCartney. Yeah, yeah, it's a good song. Um, I like yeah. I like the original a lot. It's got a kind of very wistful sound to it. I don't know if that's the production. I suspect, I don't, again, I haven't researched this. I should have. I suspect it was a George Martin in production i imagine for peter and gordon i don't know but it's it's nicely done well past his version i don't know this it's like a kind of hollow void there's there's nothing there for me you just get the depressing nature of the song you don't get the kind of melancholy nature of it and i, I i'm not keen yeah. i would i would give it another couple of listens because i think that i like where they've gone with this and initially when you listen to it you go this isn't that kind of uh, mersey beat sound it's far more bob dylan which is probably why you don't like it ah that'll be why yes because, <laughs> you know it's got it's got the harmonica bit in the chorus uh, and the, the bridgey bit i think once you've satisfied yourself that it is a different take on it actually what they do with it is quite nice and okay i was pleasantly surprised so it's, yeah it's maybe one that that needs more than one go. Well, I certainly wouldn't skip it like I would Sinead O'Connor, so uh, that's fair enough. Definitely not skipping the next one. Uh, track eight's uh, Tainted Love, which is one of the best songs, full stop, no matter who does it. This time, the Inspiral Carpet's doing it. And um, I'd be interested to see your take on this. But first of all, I just want to take my hat off to the original writer, Ed Cobb. No one knows who he is. Uh, an American guy in the 50s, wrote this B-side throwaway thing for uh, Gloria Jones. That's right. It wasn't even yes. an A-side. Yeah. Um, uh, and it just got picked up in the uh, Northern Soul Clubs uh, yeah. by by Mark Omd. I'm, I'm guessing he huge. was one of these people lined up in a row in, what did they call them, the Brill Building, wasn't it, or something, where all the songwriters sat mm. and just churned. Yeah. Neil Sedaka was one, wasn't he, I think, for a while, and um, other people like that. Yeah, they just churned them out, and... Um, so, yeah, I'm guessing he probably sadly didn't make much money from this, but um, we were talking about covers of covers before, and this is one of those. Um, I like it, actually. Um, Clint Boone's Farfisa, not not a euphemism, uh, is in full tilt on this song. He, he really goes for it, doesn't he, on this one? And, um, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it, again, in their style, it kind of works. Definitely. I mean, I mean, we are looking at a really, really difficult song to potentially ruin is very because the soft cell version is so loved and so iconic to take that and go in a different direction with it uh, and say no this is this is the this is how the inspiral carpet's doing it would sound not this is the inspiral carpet's trying to do soft cell yeah 
love I love the organ work. I mean, I, I I do love Inspiral Carpet stuff anyway. Yeah, me too. Me too. One of the best quote unquote Manchester because they weren't from Manchester. Yeah, they're from Oldham, aren't they? Oldham, but, yeah. But, uh, but but of that of that ilk and of that time, I thought they were way better than the Happy Mondays or the Roses. Uh, I much prefer uh, their stuff. Probably more consistent than the Roses, Happy Mondays. Yeah, maybe on a par. So I, I certainly like them very much. And uh, I mean, and, yeah, it's esteemed company. This is a high bar. Yeah, but they were my. They, I think they did more hits that I liked. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and but but yeah, I think you're right that he really goes for it on this. It, it is different. It it does add something. Yeah, there's just the, that fuller production brings something different to it. Yeah, because the, the tainted love that Soft Cell came up with is quite sparse, really, when you think about it. I mean, that kind of pink pink line that runs through it, that's not anywhere in this version. And goodness knows it must have been tempting to just put that in, because that's the version everybody knew. I mean, if you think it's ubiquitous now, believe me, it was then, even, that song and their version of it. So, yeah, the, the fact that they've just completely reworked it from scratch, yeah, fair play. Let's move on to track nine and... One of the most joyful. Disc three is full of absolutely joyful moments, uh, and this is one of them. It's electric music. You won't have heard of electric music. It's basically half of Kraftwerk. Yeah. And Baby Come Back, which, if I can say one thing about it, it's certainly not the Pato Banton version. No, it, it, it very much isn't, and it, it predates that by uh, a couple of years, doesn't it, actually? Yeah, it's yeah. Carl, Carl Bartos, as you said, formerly of Kraftwerk, and another chap who's uh, who's not as famous, um, who were only briefly, I think, together anyway. So the fact they made this album at all is a bit of a miracle. And it, it's it's just, the whole thing's vocoded, which I can't do an impression <laughs> of. The only bit I can do an impression of is the bit where they add in please at the end of each chorus after they've said baby come back which is brilliant I, it's funny um when when i picked uh, some tracks off this when i actually uh, borrowed some of these from you home tapings killing music kids i did pick that as one of the tracks because i just couldn't get it out of my head it was so silly it's not a classic but it's a it's a great laugh it is wonderfully wonderfully nonsensical and it, basically it's imagine if speak and spell did a song yeah wonderful and um we normally on uh, oblong desk have ashley abraham applause now obviously ashley abraham was nowhere near this but i feel that there should be some sort of equivalent like the the new musical expression of gratitude <laughs> very we good do for them now we'll have a quick yes. one of that because track 10 is craftworks the model which has been done by ride and it, I, I think it's worth it had had craftwork done baby comeback they wouldn't have got the applause but the fact that you have to know that electric music is one half of Kraftwerk, and then you put the next track. That, that this is so musoy, enemy, yeah, knowing smirk. That, that, that that's why it needs. To, once you've once you've unwrapped that Easter egg, it, it, it's a gift. It's quite um, soft. Anyway, yeah. actually, this is a really good, if straight, interpretation. It's one of those they've gone in and done a solid job of ride, uh, and better than I was expecting. Oh, interesting. I have a problem with this. My problem is not with the choice of cover necessarily or the way they've done it. I cannot stand his voice. I don't know why. There's something about the vocals I just don't like on any of their songs, really. It's not the weirdest cover on here, so certainly it would have a lot of competition on this disc to be the weirdest cover anyway. It's just a bit odd. Um we said about Ned's Atomic Dustbin doing something completely different, doing rave stuff and basically putting down the guitars. This is uh, broadly similar, only here Ryder using synths instead of guitars. 
but not in a rave style. They're they're just you know doing a, a pretty standard synth uh, cover of this. Yeah, I'm I'm not keen, but it is mainly down to the vocals, to be honest. Oh, okay. I don't mind the vocal, and therefore, you know, I think an all right job has been done. We now have a moment, listener. Uh, it's track eleven. We're going to play it. We've talked about it, I think, uh, repeatedly on other desks. We can put it off no longer. I think this was probably the reason why we decided to do this entire show. So without further ado, Mr. Vic Reeves and Vienna. I know a place I know a place in a foreign land Name of Belgium Stinks, but the people think they think that it doesn't. They think that it doesn't, but it does. I'm telling you, it stinks. That is Vic Reeves with Vienna on Ruby Tracks. It is track 11 on disc 3. Just to remind you, this is an album of a contemporary people from 1992 covering number one hit songs. Now, you may have spotted the, uh, <laughs> the slight difference in what Vic has done there with that because he's picked a song that got to number two. Of course he has. Uh, Vienna was the song that... Uh, was stuck behind Joe Dolce's Shut Up Your Face. But in terms of the cover versions on here, it's night and day because the cover of Shut Up Your Face is terrible, as we've discussed. And the cover of Vienna that he's done here is just, I think I just wrote down two words, ridiculous and brilliant. Yeah, this is one of my favourite things. Never mind music. This is one of my favourite things that actually exists. It's perfectly bizarre. Uh, It manages somehow to simultaneously pay homage or homage to, and totally undermine the original. (laughs) I don't know how it does it. I I have no words other than, listener, it is your your duty to seek this out and spend three and a half minutes. Yes, you should. Yes, you should. I mean, if if we start off by explaining the basic premise, so the the premise of the song is that uh, Vic talks about a place he knows called Vienna, which is in Belgium. So that's just the opener, right? That that That's the opening line. And then halfway through, or actually, no, towards the end of the song, we're suddenly encountering things like, what is this we cry? A fox, a fox in a cardboard box. And yeah, I, I can't do it justice, really, but that that's kind of sample of, of what you can expect. Yeah, my, the crying out laughing line is at the start of the second verse for me, where... He very, very seriously intones, Hitler dwelt in this land <laughs> and Van Morrison was born here. Yes. You, <laughs> and it fits. I mean, the, the, lyrically, you struggle to remember what Midgeor actually sang in the original once you've heard this. It is that strong. I, I can't sing you the original now. Uh, I, I, I can, but um, it partly maybe because it's been overplayed, but I, I'd rather hear this version any day of the week. Anyway, I think, I think, listener, we have sold you. If you haven't been sold, there's something wrong with you. Um, let's move on to track 12, which it isn't, it isn't track 11. It's Tin Machine and Go Now 
which was Moody Blues. Yeah, Moody Blues cover. Um, I'm not a massive fan of the original. It's not one of my favourite 60s chart toppers, to be honest. Um, Tim Machine... Do you know, I get a lot of stick, don't they, for not being just David Bowie on his own. I don't think they were as bad as all that. Um, I mentioned earlier there was two songs I, I couldn't um, find anywhere. I could only find a live version of this. So I listened to a little bit of it, but I, I suspect it probably wasn't madly different from the version on this album. And it's kind of nothing special, really. Yeah, and it's not Bowie singing it. And I, I'm, I'm not certain, but I seem to remember that he may not even have been present for the recording either. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so, so it is Tin Machine minus Bowie, I think. I'd, I'd which, which, happy to happy to stand corrected, but certainly not him on the lead vocal. Which, yeah, which, which kind of negates my point about Tin Machine not being as bad as people make out. If you take Bowie out of them, then I think they probably are. So, uh, yes, let's, um, let's move on to the next one, then. Let's play a bit of it. We're going back to... Disco done in slightly different style with track 13. It's Curve and I Feel Love. That's the penultimate track on Ruby Tracks, which we're reviewing here on Oblong Desk's Occasional Table Curve, with I Feel Love. Now, this was a tricky one for me when I first heard this. I had no inkling that I was going to in any way get on with it. The reason why is that I Feel Love is one of my favourite songs of all time. It's also the first single I ever bought in its 1982 Patrick Cowley remix form, admittedly, but still. However, I absolutely loved this. I would never have guessed you could take one of the best pieces of recorded music ever and turn it into a goth disco song and make it as good as this but you can apparently i would totally agree with you one of my favorite songs as well somehow and i'm not sure how it does it but it manages to pack even more energy into it than than the uh, original donna summer song and it's one of those very few examples there have been a couple on here for me at any rate where you take a supremely brilliant song and again i'm going to say it i prefer this version to the original which is controversial Ooh, i wouldn't go that far but but it is very I mean, but, I, but i i'm going there i'm going okay there. i mean it's it's very very good i mean the, the, that's i think one of the hardest songs to cover the thing with i feel love is it sounded pretty futuristic then and if you think about how things date most people would argue that song just hasn't dated at all you you could have put that in i mean obviously you couldn't put it further back in time but you could say oh yeah you know, it was released in the 80s and 90s and it would still sound contemporary um it's a very very difficult one to choose if they've picked it well a big tipping of the hat to them that's all i can say because that must have been a tough job i reckon yeah uh, as i say i i think they do 
phenomenally on here. And I think for me, what makes it, because I would agree with you that a lot of Giorgio Moroder's stuff was right on the very edge of what was possible with synthesizers. There are sometimes when, when covers are done uh, with updated instrumentation, mm. particularly electronic stuff, the advances that are made in electronics, they can sometimes ruin it. But, the, but I think in this case, for me, it's the instrumentation which adds. And indeed, the, uh, the vocal, I think, is really interesting on this one as well. Um, it's not a complete copy. Um, no. For me, yeah, I say very, very interesting. And I, and I don't know what it is about it, but I prefer it. Yeah, and it's it's not one of my go-to bands. I mean, the enemy loved them. They were kind of forerunners of that shoegazing scene in some respects, weren't they? They were a little bit kind of on the cusp between the goth and the, the shoegazing movement. Um, but they did get very excited about Curve. I personally didn't find them that exciting with the stuff that they released otherwise, but this is by far the best thing they ever did, in my opinion. And, oh, absolutely. And if they absolutely. wanted a left-field single, they could have done better releasing this instead of the next one, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, the final track on here, which um, brings Ruby Tracks to a close uh, and was released, as you say, uh, The Manic Street Preachers with the cover of Suicide is Painless, the theme from M.A.S.H. This, for me, is a little bit average and, and, and gets quite shouty at the end in a way that the Manics quite often did in their songs when it doesn't need to be shouted at all particularly the, the kind of like final couple of choruses he's really wailing it there yeah it's it's not the best um early manix is very much in that mold uh there's a reason why motorcycle emptiness is in my opinion by far the best thing off the first album because it's not done in that shouty loud style in any way it's very much okay when you consider the covers they did later um raindrops keep falling on my head they did for was it the help album it was another charity thing they did that for i think it was help or war child or or, or something like that i can't remember exactly but that was a very good cover pretty straight down the line but but much more interesting than this and then later on i think it was an extra track on one of their greatest hits or something like that they did a cover of this is the day by the the and did it brilliantly um now, neither of those songs were number one, so clearly they couldn't have qualified for this album. But my point is, you know, they clearly had the potential to do good cover versions, perhaps not at this point in their career, though. And there we go, listener. We've made it through 40 fantastic, wonderful, terrible, beautiful, absolutely stunning tracks in their various ways, and some completely forgettable ones that you've probably already forgotten as well. <laughs> uh, but now, it, all that remains for us to do on this occasional table is to go through all 40 of those and pick a winner it's it's like the grand national it is so, exactly it's, like the grand national yes With, um... so shall we shall we allow ourselves therefore because it is such a huge field shall we allow ourselves the benefit of maybe having three i was gonna say two but we'll go three we'll go three yeah i think I as think long as because we've reviewed so many we don't usually get three forty trucks we usually skip some for various reasons but we, we've covered these pretty fully i i think I, I, there's certainly there's two that I can't choose from, and they're, and they're both of the same type. If you know what I mean, you can probably guess what's right coming. Here. So yes, I would rather yes. have another one that isn't. So uh... <laughs> yes. Well, how about given that we've kind of gone through these three categories, how about we have our favourite straight cover, our favourite one, favourite one, and our favourite novelty one? How's about that? But that's that's not going to help me choose, but we can try. <laughs> 
I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll go first. Yeah, I, go on. I'm pretty much, I'm pretty much decided on mine. Um, my favourite favourite one uh, is, in fact, not Vic Reeves. That's my favourite novelty one because I think you know there has to be a level of musicianship about this as well. <laughs> uh, and whilst that is utterly utterly bonkers, and there's no way I couldn't give it some kind of award, uh, Vic Reeves. And Vienna is certainly getting one for my novelty. I think in terms of its musicianship, uh, I can't look past Tears for Fears and Ashes to Ashes. I think that is such a phenomenal job he does on that, that I'd want to recognise that one. But my absolute, absolute favourite track that I go back to again and again and again and listen to for just quality is the one that we've just played. It's Curve, and I feel love. And that is my favourite track on here. Okay, well, um, in terms of if we're kind of keeping in those three categories, it's going to be quite simple because I agree with you on two of the three. So my favourite novelty song would be Vic Reeves as well, not surprisingly. My favourite fairly straight cover is also Tears for Fears because I think it's superb. My favourite, what was the other category, was, you know, done in a completely different style, wasn't it? Um, Which... I agree, Curve is exceptional. Mark Holman, I, I would say, is pretty good as well, though you could argue whether that's outside of his normal style. I gonna, I mean, this could potentially fall into the novelty category, but I'm actually going to give the other one to Ned's Atomic Dustbin and uh, Never Been To Me, because I just think the way they've cr- crafted that song is absolutely genius. I don't care if it's silly. I think it's a brilliant piece of music in its own right, so I'm going to have that for my third one. Well done. Well, these they're fine choices all. And um, listener, as usual, if you would like to um, offer your suggestions to your favourite Ruby track, uh, then please feel free to do so at the Oblong Desk on Twitter or Facebook, or you can leave a message at our website, which is oblongdesk.podbean.com. That was Mammoth. We should be back with probably some shorter. We won't do a triple disc again, I don't think. <laughs> I'm exhausted, but it but it was fun. It's it's not very often you get these albums come round. It's it's um I don't think it's been done since, has it? I mean, there's been the odd, as I mentioned, charity thing of a similar nature, but usually one disc. I think everybody involved in this was probably exhausted at the thought of yes. uh, producing another one, and I know where they're coming from. I need to lie down. And on that bombshell, we shall. Thank you to The Enemy for producing that, because it is fairly unique. Uh, We're going to go away and think about what we've done. Oblong Desk's Occasional Table is the work of Noakes and John Tyndall with original music by John. Subscribe to the podcast and get all the episodes at oblongdesk.podbean.com. (laughs) 